Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to another episode of What Next. Today we have Dr. Marcus Collins, who is an award-winning marketer and cultural translator. He comes to us at this very moment from Ann Arbor, Michigan, where in addition to being a practitioner, he is a teacher at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, a marketing professor. He is also the author of the best-selling book, For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be. Marcus is also the former chief strategy officer at a small little agency that nobody has heard of called Wyden and Kennedy. And he has been honored by a lot of different people, uh, advertising ages 40 under 40 award, and inductee into the American Advertising Federation Advertising Hall of, of Achievement. He was recognized by Thinkers 50 and Deloitte, and it goes on and on. His strategies and creative contributions after the launch and success of Google's Real Tone technology, the Made in America Music Festival, and the Brooklyn Nets, among others. And before all of this stuff, just to make sure that he was also doing stuff when he was five years old, Marcus worked on iTunes, plus the Nike Sport Music Initiative at Apple, and ran digital strategy for another unknown person called Beyonce. Welcome, Marcus. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Well, you have what I can only basically say, a magical mystery and a magical mystical career. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you did all this crazy stuff before we speak about culture. You know, I, um, I'm a product of Detroit, born and raised there. And, you know, I, I did well in math and science. And like anyone in, in those in the 90s, if you did well in math and science and you were black, you studied engineering. So that's what I did. I studied engineering uh, in, in my undergraduate work. But I didn't think that engineering was the right fit for me. I thought it was interesting. I just wasn't necessarily interested in doing it for for career. Um, but you know, my parents didn't agree with that, so I finished my engineering degree. But spent a lot of my time exploring the the world of music. I took music theory courses because I thought the major sevenths were were uh, were pretty fascinating. It felt familiar and novel at the same time. So when I graduated from undergrad, I went into the into the music business. I was a songwriter uh, I did a startup, a music startup with another ex engineer. Um, and you know, the music industry is is a fickle one. It is very dynamic. Um, and it wasn't, it didn't work out for me in the long run. So I went back to school to study marketing. So that I thought that that was the most creative, uh, form of business. So study marketing, um, and found my way, uh, in the world of, of Apple. And, you know, I, when I think about my career, I'm, I'm very grateful for every opportunity. I honestly just feel like I've been playing catch up for about six years. The six years that I was in the world of music, you know, pursuing music and didn't really have the success that I would hope for, <laughs> you know, I wanted to be the fifth member of Boys to Men. If you remember that singing group, that's what I was going after um, with a little bit of Babyface, the songwriter, but it just didn't work out. And so I felt like since I've found my way in the world of marketing and it's been such a good fit for me, I've just been playing catch up, just trying to make up for uh, what one would argue uh, lost time. So my... My approach is is to be very aggressive about the things that I'm excited about, the things that I get fired up about, um, and spend no time on the things that I am not excited about. And apparently, one of the things you are very excited about is culture. Mm -hmm. So, before we go into your three predictions, how do you define it? What is culture? For me, you know, uh, culture is one of those words we often use but seldom fully understand. And 
is probably understandable because culture is so it's so amorphous it's so uh abstract and esoteric it's like explaining water to a fish it's a hard thing to do because it's all around us it's omnipresent so i think about culture through a sociological lens borrowing from uh, one of the founding fathers of sociology a gentleman by the name of emil durkheim who talks about culture as a system of conventions and expectations that demarcate who we are and govern what people like us do, right? They, they, they separate or they, they, they create boundaries around who we are, identifying who we are, and demarcates the acceptable and expected behaviors of people like us. It's rooted in our identity. And because of who we are, we see the world a certain way. We have a certain set of beliefs and ideologies. And because we see the world a certain way, we navigate the world a certain way through a set of artifacts, behaviors, and language. And then we express ourselves through shared works, like through cultural production, that is music, film, television, art, uh, literature, podcasts, and brands and branded products. The alchemy of these systems or systems of systems, uh, they they make up our, our, our culture. And it is you know, the most the most influential external force on human behavior. Um, And as a marketer whose job it is to get people to adopt behavior, uh, I find it the most fascinating uh, phenomenon in, in, in in humanity and also uh, the most reoccurring because of its unprecedented influence on our day-to-day life as social actors. So we live in a world of cultures and sometimes we cross cultures and sometimes cultures resonate with each other and from time to time we have cultures that i guess clash with each other if that makes uh, that makes sense so with that you believe that culture is a cheat code for marketers those who understand culture will be the ones who win can you elucidate because there are some people who believe the people who understand ai data and math will be the ones who yeah. win well I don't think those things are binary or mutually exclusive, uh, but I do think that one is an antecedent to the other. You know, data and AI, they help us look at uh, the statistical events that have happened, right? They allow us to look at what people do, at least on the, the, the big data side. Generative AI become ways by which we interact with this phenomenal world uh, uh, that we inhabit. Uh, but culture is the antecedent to those things. Culture is the way by which we see the world. And because of the way we see the world, we show up in the world accordingly, right? And, and, and to your point, there are many, 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 many cultures. And because there are many, 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 many cultures, there are many, many, many ways of seeing the world, right? For some, a cow is leather. For others, it's a deity. And for some, it's dinner. Which one is it? It's all those things. For some, a rug is a decor. For some, it's a souvenir. For some, it's a place of worship. Which one is it? It's all of those things based on who you are and how you see the world. And so because of our cultural frames, they help us make meaning. Raymond Williams actually referred to culture as a realized signifying system or a realized meaning-making system. Because we make meaning through these cultural frames, right? the, the way we see the world is is interpreted through our beliefs and ideologies. Therefore, when we're looking at the data, while we observe what people do, we have to get much closer to understand what it means. And I think that that's probably one of the most paradoxical uh, parts of, of, of marketing today. 
is that we have so much data, reams and reams and reams and reams of data. Like our, our data acquisition has increased exponentially, but marketers still struggle to understand their consumers. Like, how is this a thing? How, how is this even possible? And I think it's because we mistake information for intimacy. We think because we have information on people that we know who they are, but those two things are analogous. You know, you, you have a meeting with someone, you would jump on LinkedIn right quick to see where they went to school or where they worked or probably where they're from or who they might know, but you don't know them until you engage. And it's it's sort of the difference between having a map that shows you the relationships between different things um, and knowing the terrain. And for, for marketers to understand uh, people, to, to actually have the context to make meaning of the phenomenon that the data helps us uh, uh, see and AI, generative AI at least, helps us respond to, we have to have intimacy. We have to understand meaning. That is the underlying physics uh, that informs or that is that that is governing the observations that we see through the behavior that people take on. I could not agree more with you, you know, sp- sort of paraphrasing two different now dead poets, one of them, T.S. Eliot, who had a line between the idea and the reality falls the shadow. That's right. I often use that to between the data and the reality falls the shadow, <laughs> right? Which is sub one, one. And then to your point, we have so much data, again, paraphrasing Samuel Taylor Coolridge, you know, data, data everywhere, so much data, I will sink. Data, <laughs> data everywhere, please, who will help me think? <laughs> you know, there's this, uh, to, to, to lay on top of that, another, another great, great quote. Uh, he says that, uh, that marketers use data like a drunk use a lamppost. Yeah, yeah, that's David Ogilvy. And it's a powerful thing. I mean, it, it is true. You know, because we don't understand how people make meaning, we look at the data and hope that the data just tells us. And this is the difference between uh, quantitative and qualitative data, right? In that quantitative data, you know, well, but for us, all data, no data has an opinion, right? Data has an opinion. We are the we are the interpreters. So quantitative data, we use regressions to understand what the data is saying, right? That's the instrument regressions. But when we're studying culture, this this antecedent of all behavior in the social world, you know, we use qualitative data. And in that way, we, the marketers, the researchers, we are the instrument. We are the research instrument. So it's our job to interpret. But if we don't have proximity to who these people are, then our interpretations aren't very insightful, unfortunately. I would agree with you. And I think, you know, we often talk about consumers and customers, but before someone is a consumer and a customer, they're a person. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, fancy that. Right. And what you're basically saying is we need to understand people and their cultures. And that is absolutely true because, you know, two things really. One, in this age of AI, clearly with generative AI, et cetera, it gives you new forms of expression like we've never done mm-hmm. before. But that expression comes from meaning making, you know, what you believed, et cetera, which is number one. The second is if marketers believe that data is the answer and AI will tell them the answer, I often tell them if that's exactly what it is, they're not going to have a job because if it's just about the data, the machine will blurt out the answer and what next to do. And the job really is perspective, points of view, provocations, plans of action, which require a cultural context. So tell me a little bit about, you know, either with examples or 
who's doing it kind of well, who's not doing it well. And then if you could also discuss a little bit about currently when people try to like take a position or point of view, and I don't know if it's necessarily culture, they can either do it correctly, like maybe a Nike does, or do it not so yeah. correctly, like maybe a Budweiser does. Sure. <laughs> sure. If we look at the marketing through the lens of culture, to your point, that we look at consumers as real life human beings, I mean, not, not these like machines who eat messages and, and crap cash, like real human beings, then we say, okay, how do they see the world? And then where do we have license to, to engage with them? But that requires not only understanding consumers, but understanding ourselves, understanding people, but also understanding ourselves. Like, how do we see the world as a company? Not what we do, but in the words of Simon Sinek, why we do it, right? I mean, transcending right. the value propositions and the categories, you know, I'm, you know, Theodore Lovett talked about, you know, uh, that the, the railroad industries, that you're not in the business of railroads, you're in the business of transportation. You're not in the business of toothpaste, you're in the business of smiles, right? So the idea is transcending the category, moving beyond the value propositions to operate at an ideological level. How does the brand see the world? What's your point of view about the world? And because of your point of view about the world, you're able to connect with people at an ideological level, not because you're a razor sharper, your battery lasts longer, or your car goes faster, but because you have a point of view that is congruent with someone else's. And Nike does this so very well. Now, again, biased because of my widened background, but it's true. Right. You, know, uh, you know, Nike believes that every human body is an athlete. Big, small, short, tall, we're all athletes. And the only thing keeping us from realizing our best athletic self is us. So what does Nike tell the world? Just do it, right? And who does Nike target? Athletes. And how does Nike talk to athletes? Like an athlete. And they talk to swimmers one way, footballers one way, runners one way, gymnasts another way. They talk to them in this very bespoke nuanced way, understanding all the cultural characteristics of what it means to be a runner, but with all the shared ethos of what it means to be an athlete. So they're able to uh, tell stories with fireworks while building campfires. And the aggregate of doing so allows them to get scale. And this is the sort of the takeaway of the book for marketers, leaders, politicians, managers, activists, clergy, anyone with the vested interest of getting people to move. The way that we connect with people starts with ideological congruence, not value propositions. So if we start with, I see the world this way, and then we find people who see the world just like us, we then preach the gospel. And those people go, finally, someone said it. Finally, man, I've been feeling this way forever. And then they go, hey, hey, John, come over here. They're saying the same thing we were just saying. And people start to share your brand, not because of what you are and what you do, but because of who they are and how they see the world. And the brand becomes an extension of their own identity. And it propagates throughout their, their community, their tribe, their network, based on the credence of those people and the shared ideology that those people have. And as a result, the brand becomes a receipt of identity. It becomes an identity mark based on cultural congruence. And that's unbelievably powerful. I would agree. And I think that is a great example. I think you had a, some really interesting lines, which we, our listeners can think more about, which is the importance of ideology, uh, point of view. Uh, in, in many ways, I think the other line was great, you know, stories with fireworks, but really create campfires, uh, which is important. 
and more importance than relevance is resonance, mm -hmm. which is, uh, I think, one of the key things you say, which is very much like when you read a great novel, you say, my God, this writer knows me. That's right. So similarly, you know, it's the same thing, which is, which is pretty extraordinary. Moving on to your second point, obviously, culture is a cheat code for marketers, and you've built this case as people who better understand culture will be able to connect better, be able to resonate better, and it's important to have a point of view and ideology. Given that, uh, you basically say that you'll, we're likely to see more cultural studies and marketing practice to better influence this and influence consumer behavior. Can you speak a little bit sure. more about that? Well, I think if we as an industry, as a discipline, come to the realization uh, of, of culture, and this sort of the, the driving impulse of writing the book, uh, that we see the, the imperative of understanding culture and leveraging it into our marketing activities, our marketing practices, then we go, okay, great. So how do I study culture? Like, how do I get understand culture? And historically, we have used trend spotting as a shortcut for, for studying culture. And while trend spotting has some benefits for sure, but trend spotting only tells us what people are doing. When we talk about cultural exploration, we want to know why they're doing it, right? Trend spotting, by and large, is in search of what's popular, which I think is actually revealing of how we think about culture as an industry. Culture, for many people, is just a shortcut for popularity. So trend spotting becomes the method by which they study culture. But culture is a convention, a system of conventions and expectations that require understanding meaning, right? They are a meaning-making system. There's a meaning-making system. Therefore, when we study culture, we have to study it in search of meaning. And how do we do that? Well, all the uh, the social scientists have been telling us this for over a century now. We, over centuries, rather, we use ethnographies, right? We immerse ourselves in the cultural contexts of people, setting aside our own biases, setting aside our own ethnocentrisms, if only for a moment in time, to apprehend the world through the meaning-making systems of these people. And, and that's that's sort of a, a core point that marketers, leaders, politicians, anyone who's doing ethnographic work has to realize is that there is no objective truth, that the truth is subjective because meaning is sub subjective. And therefore, if we are to understand how people see the world, then we have to be able to practice a radical amount of, of empathy to adopt their perspective. You know, I, I tell my students often, that if you think about uh, the social world in which we have it, inhabit, uh, a basketball game is a good proxy. That if we're watching a basketball game, if you have courtside seats and I have nosebleed seats, we're watching two different games. The same thing is taking place, right? Like phenomenally, the same things are, are, are happening, but the way that we observe it, the way we experience it, the way we translate it is different based on our perspective. Therefore, if we are to get a better understanding of the social world in which we inhabit, we have a better understanding of people, then we have to sit in many, many more seats. We have to sit in many seats to see how people see the world. And ethnographies help us do this. It helps us uh, uh, adopt the lenses of people to understand how they translate the world so that we might be able to speak to them in a way that is congruent with the way that they make meaning. So if marketers understand and grapple with the importance of, of culture when it comes to bringing their products to market, then naturally the next step is to say, okay, so how do I study that? Well, we study it through ethnographic 
means. And that is a field ethnography where we put ourselves in the in the marketplace. Or there might be a netnography coined by Rob Kosnitz when we observe people practice their cultural subscription uh, unobtrusively through social networking platforms. Right. I happen to to uh, rely on Reddit quite a bit. Right. Because Reddit is a community of communities. People opt in to to these subreddits for community, not just for information. Um, and the beautiful part about these subreddits is that they're moderators and the subreddits. That is, there are people who are literally cleaning the data. So if you post things that are antithetical to the cultural characteristics, the conventions and expectations of the community, your post gets taken away. And if you continue to post things that are outside of the cultural characteristics, the conventions and expectations of the community, you get exiled. And that's a really powerful yes. thing for, for a researcher because we get to watch people negotiate and construct meaning through the discourse and do it at such a massive fidelity. You know, my, my, my doctoral research, I did an ethnography on how brands and branded products spread in a cultural context, looking at hip hop culture in particular, right? I had like 16 million uh, lines of discourse to analyze. Like it's just a, a rich, rich, rich uh, 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 trove of, of information, but also uh, it's a, a, a very salient way to observe people practice their culture. So if we understand culture's power, then now we have to understand how to study culture. And ethnographies and ethnographies become the most powerful way to do that. So, you know, I agree. And I would say that, I mean, said analogy is, you know, trend spotting is like taking the temperature of an animal and deciding whether it's hot or cold. (laughs) And you, you know, ethnography and ethnography is like touching the, the, uh, or observing the elephant from different directions, the tail, the tusks, uh, the size, to actually know what it is versus whether it's a hot animal or a cold animal. That's right. That's right. You, you try to figure out what it is. That's right. And and, and, and that's a big thing. And uh, we don't have time to go into sort of a sidebar on what's happened a few weeks ago on Reddit where it almost was a revolution where the moderators sort of turned against uh, or apparently turned against management yeah. uh, because of some of their API fees. Yeah. That was something I watched. And I completely agree with you. I basically use Reddit a lot. And um, and I use it for exactly that reason, which is there are deep communities of actual meaning. That's right. Uh, right? Versus communities of yelling, <laughs> which often you find now on something formerly known as Twitter. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, with that being said, I'd like to um, move to your third um, point, which is this entire idea, you know, we were talking about animals and your basic belief that we're all social animals and that while the most powerful brands today leverage culture, the future of brands will be communal and it'll be community that will be the key thing. And I've often heard that the next thing past social is communal. So speak a bit about that. Sure. You know, um, if the most powerful brands today we use as identity marks, as a way to signal who we are based on uh, our, our, our cultural congruence with what the brand wants to mean, um, then of course the next thing for us to do is to find people who are like ourselves, right? We're a social 
animals by nature, as Aristotle uh, says. We're we're given to be in community. We're given to belonging. You know, anthropologists, especially evolutionary anthropologists, would argue that the reason we're able to evolve as a species is our ability to socialize, to cooperate, to come together. Right. So it's deep in is deep in our in our in our wiring. It's in our brainstem to to be connected. And if brands become ways by which we demarcate who we are in the world culturally, as as uh, Emil Durkheim posits, then we look to find people who are like ourselves. We go, oh, you see the world the way I see the world. Let's come, let's come together. And I think the brands that are able to evolve from just being an identity mark to facilitating these communities where the brand becomes a tribal mark, then the brand's job is no longer to uh, to just sell people. It's about facilitating these communities in really powerful ways. And for me, you know, I came to this not because of my own, you know, brilliance or anything of that nature. Actually, you know, the first inkling of this was through failure. I used to run digital strategy for for Beyonce, as you know. Um, and a part of my job was about moving her offline fan club online. Right. It's part of my job. And this is in 2009. I am Sasha Fierce. This is single ladies, Beyonce. She's evolving from artist Beyonce to queen B. And it's, in my mind, this is going to be an, an easy feat. Uh, so we, we work with the label to erect this, uh, this presence on her social feeds. And, you know, it's kind of a party that no one shows up to relative to her celebrity. And we go, what's going on here? Why isn't this working? And we look over the, the social web and we find in the recesses of the internet, there's a small group of people who call themselves the beehive. They're not just fans of Beyonce, but they believe what Beyonce believes. Beyonce stands for, she's an icon that signifies women's empowerment. They believe that they see the world similarly and they consume Beyonce's music, not just because it sounds good and it does, but because it is cultural production. It is a, it is an expression and reflection of who they are and how they see the world. And what we found is that these people not only were listening to the music, not only were they fans, but they had developed their own artifacts, behaviors, and language. And we go, that is a community. So we decided to cut bait on the thing that we were doing. Um, and the team partnered with the Beehive to make the Beehive the official fan club of Beyonce. And you know, I look at that and I go, man, like we were trying to build a community. But the idea is not to build a community, it's to facilitate community. By finding people who see the world the way you do, you use your resources, you use your your all the things at your disposal to help facilitate their coming together, their experience, their expressing uh, and, and exercising their cultural subscription, and removing the barriers that keep them from doing that very thing. I mean, if you look at uh, you know the, the this summer is a perfect example of this. You, know, you got Beyonce and the Beehive, Taylor Swift and the Swifties together. Yeah. You know, their 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 economic impact has been measured by their impact on the, the national GDP. Like that's ridiculous. Yeah. Right. These aren't it it, it, it is. It is. And, and and since I'm in Chicago, both of them came by Chicago. Yeah. And I think, you know, Chicago's GDP during that week, I, I you couldn't get a hotel room, that's right. restaurants were full. Yeah. Uh you know, I, I dropped my daughters and wife and the Beyonce thing and just the observation was exactly what you basically sort of sort of mentioned. Uh, they couldn't get tickets for the Swift thing, but you know it's kind of really interesting, right? And it's not just the music; it's people were there for the communal experience. You know, they dressed, yeah. they adorned themselves in the artifacts of the community. You know, I think absolutely, absolutely. I, it was it was completely it, it was it was fascinating, 
And you know everything from what Beyonce does to like the bead trading and bead collection with Taylor Swift, yeah, and the impact like Taylor Swift, like a day before yesterday was like, uh, I think voter registration, yeah, right. And she almost crashed the voter registration site. And she says, "Hey, you know, vote. Have your voice heard. That's right. You have a voice. You come and yell at my concerts. Have a voice." <laughs> and this isn't just because her music sounds good. You know, this, this right, isn't about right. the, the value propositions of the product. This is about people who see the world similarly. They went and bought the beads, which saw uh, Michael's, yep. the retailer saw a massive yep, jump. Yep. Um, Beyonce told people to wear silver during Virgo season and Etsy saw a massive spike in people buying silver, uh, silver artifacts. I mean, this is powerful stuff and it's not happening because they're great artists. Right. That, 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 that That's sort of table stakes. They have transcended yes. it being an artist. And then now they represent a, a communal point of view and they use their resources. They use their music to facilitate said community. Well, one of the things that's pretty remarkable, which is another crazy community that is being created just now, not at the same level, but who the hell knows of you know the ladies, is you know what Dion Sanders is doing at the Colorado Buffaloes. That's which, right. which apparently is he's moving merch. He puts on his glasses. And what is surprisingly uh, is that the population of where he plays is 2% African-American, but 70% of the audience of everything now is African-American. And he has tapped into something, which is pretty interesting, including by getting a lot of the transfers from you know, historical black colleges. Uh, That's right. And, and, and the way he appears. So a lot of people basically say, like, why is he appearing that way? And a lot of African-Americans are very proud of that and say, you know, we should do that. So it's kind of really, really right. interesting when you have this cultural artifact that's happening even in just football, right, um, in, in this particular world. And I completely agree with you that it's about, you know, uh, convening, you know, about facilitating, about sort of enabling, being a catalyst, uh, which is a key thing, which is very, very different. Exactly. And, you know, people aren't showing up just because Colorado's winning. Like, it's not that. It's not the wins alone. No, no, no. It's an attitude. It's, 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 it's a point of view. Right. It's, it's exactly the points you basically made. It's, it's an ideology of, and a way of seeing the world. That's right. And now people don, or at least $1.5 million were, were, were accumulated because people wanted those sunglasses, not yes. because of their value propositions, but because of what it represents, what it means. Yes. And, and uh, the sales of Colorado uh, you know, merch from the University of Colorado, uh, whatever, store is up 925%. <laughs> Right. And the T-shirt that says we coming is about as hard as to get as the Barbie T-shirt, you know, about enough, you know, can right. enough. Right. Yeah, it's about the right. same thing. And Barbie was another one, which was kind of interesting, you know, which is which is, which is again to your point, which a lot of people, you know, don't sort of see. That's right. So before we sort of sum up, is there anything else you would like to say? Because I know we don't have you for too long. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, the thing about culture is so powerful that it's not only influences our consumption but influences how we how we work in organizations and how we navigate society I mean the the policies that we adopt the people that we vote for these things aren't because of what they are they are because of who we are and the better we understand that the more likely we are to harness the power of culture to get people to adopt behavior I think that can be very very powerful especially considering 
uh, especially considering um, the want for marketers to, to influence behavior. Perfect. We're obviously going to be, you know, providing a link to your book and other stuff as people want to learn more. Uh, we've had the opportunity to listen to Marcus Collins, who has explained to us about various ways and the importance of culture, how culture in many ways is the way we see the world, that there are many cultures, that culture is people, and we begin first with people and the way to see people. Culture is about ideology, points of view, and a way of being, and that the best brands will just not do trend spotting, but some form of either netography or ethnography to better understand and live and understand the different societies. And the best brands will really go from, you know, connecting with people on one level to basically enabling communities and doing so in ways whether it is facilitating, convening, or being a catalyst, and recognizing that maybe in the future, resonating is better than just being relevant. Thank you very much, Marcus. Thank you so very much. What Next, a publicist group podcast produced by Prodigious UK. 